Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It is Tuesday, which means it is Draft Deep Dives Day, and I am here, as always, with my co-host, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing this fine Tuesday afternoon? Nick, I am stellar. Um, draft is rapidly, rapidly approaching. Just had Combine, which you know always induces overreactions and hot takes galore, um, but I, I'm good. I'm good. Shout out to every chair workout video everywhere. And shout out to every one-on-none workout video everywhere. Just the best time of the year for chairs. I don't think they get as much shine anywhere else than the NBA Draft Combine. It's like, you know, scenes from the Titanic and then NBA Draft Combine. That's really the moment for chairs to shine. Exactly. Exactly. At least they're being represented and have someone to look up to. There we go. So today we're going to start out by talking about your most recent Friday Screener article over at No Ceilings NBA. And your article was about Bryce McGowan's shot selection. And Bryce McGowan's is a prospect that I have wavered on significantly throughout the year. I will admit that much up front. But it was fascinating to read through your article and sort of look back at some of his film from the later part of the season because It certainly was very different than sort of how he started the year. And I think that goes a long way to telling the story of, you know, how he's developed this year. And I don't know. I mean, I feel a little bit like it's a mea culpa for me in terms of how much better he looked the second half of the season and how long it took me to come around on that. But you bought in earlier than I did. And I'm curious what you saw from the gowns, especially the second half of the season. What were your thoughts on his shot selection, not just, overall, but also sort of how it developed over the course of the year. Yeah. So I think it was uh, Nathan Grubel who initially at the start of the year um, kind of turned me or turned us on to Bryce McGowan's or at least me um, as, Hey guys, like this is someone to watch out for. Um, And I was like, okay, six, seven guy from Nebraska, apparently a fluid shooter. Cool. Let's go check him out. And then after a couple of games of, some of the worst shots I had seen so far that season, I was immediately out because as listeners know, that's mine and your least favorite type of player are these inefficient chuckers who can't, you know, who, who aren't making shots, who are taking bad shots and settling for bad shots. Um, And what we always beg for these guys to do is change their bad habits. And that's really hard to do to change the entire makeup and tendency and habit as a player. And usually that takes an off season or two, or in some cases three and in other cases, never. It's a really hard thing to do to change a player's mindset on how they approach the game. And what really just turned turned around my entire opinion of McGowan's is that he did what we hope or he did what we want guys to do in like two or three years. He did that in the middle of a season of his freshman year. So the fact that he started attacking the rim or getting to the line, using his athleticism and strength in the paint um, and not settling for as many horrible pull-up jumpers. There, there were still plenty. He, he still got in enough bad pull-up jumpers, um, but they were much less and they weren't, you know, early shot clock pull-ups or, logo pull-ups with 25 seconds left on the shot clock it was you know okay now i have to attack get to my spot and take the shot because of the game situation or the clock is running down stuff like that 
Um, so the, the fact that he just completely changed his tendencies and habits in the middle of the in the middle of his freshman year, I thought was astounding and really encouraging for who he is as a player, how he could develop with additional coaching and a better environment. Um, and just how high his scoring potential could actually be. So I wanted to start off by sort of going through the first stat that you mentioned, which was he was not very good. Let's just put it lightly at shooting off the dribble, which, you know, for a lot of these inefficient shot creator types, that's a lot of the looks that we tend to be the most upset with where it's like, okay, you're dribbling into a contested 20 footer, you know, with 18 seconds, 20, 25 seconds left on the shot clock. But something that I think was very interesting about McGowan's is he just got to the free throw line, just, you know, particularly down the stretch of the season. But really that was, I think the one thing that was the most consistent about his game, sort of from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, he cut out a lot of the bad mid range looks, but I mean, his free throw attempt rate in November was seven a game and his free throw attempt rate in January and February was just under seven a game, which, you know, given how well he shoots from the line, I think is really critical, but you know, his ability to get to the line, as you mentioned, more often get to the rim more often is going to be something that he's going to need to do at the NBA. If he continues to, let's just say, not be the best at creating those looks off the dribble for himself. Yeah. And so on the season, 6.3 6.3 free throw attempts per game at 83%. That's the, that's the best way to get easy points and get in a rhythm when the shot isn't falling. And for a lot of the year, his shot wasn't falling. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm not sure where you stand on him, but I think he'll be a good shooter in the long run. I think the indicators are there with the free throw percentage. Um, his floater ranked in the 85th percentile. Um, he didn't take a ton of them, only 25 on the season. So maybe small sample size there, but it looks like he has good touch. Um, I think he needs to raise his release point some. I think that really hurt him off the dribble as well. But then even on wide open catch and shoot jumpers, he was in the 89th percentile. So I, I do think the foundation for a good jumper is there, but it's all decision-making with him. And when, he's settling for these awful pull-up jumpers. He's not getting to the line. He's not getting in a rhythm and he's killing his team's offensive flow. So early in the season, when he was doing that on almost a possession by possession basis, it was a, it was a really brutal watch and just kind of had me begging like, okay, this is an interesting guy for next year. So something that I noticed when I sort of looked through his stat splits is that while I agree with you that, he has the shooting form to, I think, be decent long-term. His three-point percentage was not great. He shot 27% from three-point range on the air. But the thing that fascinates me looking into his splits here is he shot under 40% from two-point range in December, 43% from two-point range in January, 49% from two-point range in February, and 53% from two-point range in March. And that, I think, right there tells exactly the story that you were telling about how he cut out some of his terrible, inefficient mid-range attempts and just started getting to the rim more. And, you know, he continued to get to the free throw line all year. That, I think, was relatively constant for him. But, you know, just him getting to the rim more frequently, I think, made a huge difference. And it's pretty easy to see that in the two-point field goal percentage more than anything else for me. 
Yeah, and that th- that's the exact trend that you want out of these young players is just consistent and steady improvement throughout the year. Um, when you take away these awful pull-up jumpers where he's not creating any space or you know these logo heaves, the percentages start to turn around. And towards the end of the year, Nebraska started you know winning a few more games or at least being a lot feistier and competitive and closer in those games because they weren't having multiple guys on that team, just killing every offensive possession with bad jumpers. Instead, it was, okay, let me not settle for this contested 16 footer. Instead, I'm going to use a hesitation, use my wide shoulders, get into the defender, move them, and then finish with a reverse layup. It was additional craft is leveraging his strength and athleticism. um, And, you know, it, it was a combination of the decision-making changing and just the, the game slowing down mentally for him a lot too because the way he attacked in the beginning of the year compared to the end, it was just it was way more confident. It was more controlled. It was more composed. And just a lot more craft went into it. So st- citing another statistic from the article, which I think is also telling about sort of where his strengths lie, he finished in the 98th percentile, which is pretty hard to beat, uh, 98th percentile on drives his right in isolation, which, you know, I think that's sort of telling of everything that you've been talking about so far, where if he gets to his looks and gets to his spots, he's remarkably effective. And it's just, you know, as you mentioned, a matter over the course of the season of adjusting which you know as you said up top you know sometimes it takes guys two years three years usually at the minimum it takes like a summer off of workouts but instead he figured that out quickly enough to sort of get there halfway through his first year in college which i think was really impressive from him yeah and w- when he specifically went to his right that's where he was able to r- really fully utilize that hang dribble uh hesitations and you know secure it and go up for the big dunks and the the highlight dunks he he had a handful of them this year they were all when he was driving to his right now to play devil's advocate a little bit he also ranked in the 28th percentile when he drove to his left so he he is a little one-dimensional in terms of the direction that he kind of has to attack um i think the left hand it's not necessarily bad from a finishing perspective but from a ball handling perspective and securing the ball on drives and stuff like that that's where it needs a little bit of work. Um, but the fact that, he, you know, when he drove it t- specifically to his right, that it was that successful, that and th- that that's easily encouraging enough. So something else that I wanted to go into. Now, we mentioned sort of the off the dribble stuff for him and that not being great. But something that fascinated me is how different he was on open catch and shoots versus guarded catch and shoots. Now you go into this in a little detail in the piece, but I'm curious for you to sort of expand on that here. You know, there's usually a difference as one might assume between guarded and unguarded, right? You're much more likely to make a shot if there's nobody playing defense, but it is fascinating to me just how wide that gulf is for McGowan's. So what do you think the root causes of that might be? Yes, I, I think early in the year, some of it was, um, again, just, just poor shot selection, where instead of using a shot fake into a drive, it was, okay, catch and shoot. And 
well, the guy's already, you know, out on top of you and he's heavily contesting and influencing that shot. So that's probably not the best decision. So as the year went on, I think he started taking a few less of those and kind of more utilizing the shot fake and drive. Um, But I, I, I do think his low release point really factors a lot into it where, you know, I, I think the foundation of his mechanics is solid. I think he has good touch. I think he'll eventually get there. But that release point needs to come up a bit. Um, it just makes him a lot easier to kind of defend, to close out on. Um, it affects him shooting off the catch. It affects him shooting off the dribble. Um, and with how much smaller the windows are in the NBA, there's really no room for error. And if you're giving the defender, you know, an extra six inches to a foot in terms of ability to defend a shot based on where your, your release point is, you're giving them a huge favor that, you know, really hurts your shooting potential. So this, I think is where the shot selection question becomes really interesting to me is because given how good he is at those open catch and shoot jumpers, one would assume, you know, given the role that he played for Nebraska, one would assume that he's not going to have as much of the offensive responsibility at the NBA level, certainly not right away, you know, probably ever, but certainly not right away. So that I think it's going to be curious to tell, you know, is he someone who will, you know, take the open catch and shoot looks that he gets and not try and, you know, do too much with the ball, or is he just going to dribble into those contested looks and, I think, you know, one of the main points, if not the main point of the article, is that he got so much better at that over just the course of this one season that it's very easy to buy into the concept of, okay, you know, he gets to the NBA level. Maybe a few of those terrible mid-range pull-ups will always be there. But, you know, given that he made such a dramatic change to his shot profile just over the course of the season, I think that's encouraging for him to, you know, stick better in a role, at least at the start of his NBA career. Yeah, and the the fact that the the off ball shooting, especially when he's open, is as high as it is, I think that affords him a much bigger runway to develop a more prominent role in a rotation. Um, I, th- I think early in his career, he's going to be best suited as that off ball guy who's spotting up and then attacking closeouts, um, and you know, with the occasional kind of second side creation. Um, as he ages and kind of refines his shooting mechanics and his decision-making um, that's where I think either being that spark plug six man, ISO scorer off the bench or potentially a team's second or even first scoring option isn't out of the question if things go right, because w- with his frame, with his athleticism, his shooting touch, I think there's really really scary upside for how good of a scorer he could be if if things continue progressing in the right way technical difficulties now it is it is funny to me because a lot of the time with these exact kinds of players my debate is okay are they a sixth man bench spark club type or is there more here is there reason to assume that you know they can be someone who fits into a starting lineup as opposed to just, okay, you know, they're an excellent microwave scorer, but they don't have enough to the rest of their game where you can sort of imagine them being more than just a scoring type. So that's a very broad question, obviously, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on sort of how McGowan's fits into that particular dynamic. Do you think he brings enough else to the table besides his scoring, or do you think 
he's sort of more primed for that kind of six man role right now. Um, based on what he's shown, I, I think that six man role is the mo- most likely outcome, oh, most likely best case outcome, I guess, if that makes sense a little bit. Um, because I mean, that that's a really tough role to even break into. You know, that, that that's a very limited pool of players who can even do that. So even if he just does that, I, I think that's going to be a heck of a career. Um, oh yeah, it's it's the deci- the the decision making in terms of passing and playmaking mm-hmm. that he, he misses a lot of reads still. Um, he he's like a horse with blinders where he his sole focus <laughs> is on the rim for so much of the time and. On defense, it's just solely focused on the ball. So there were a lot of bad habits that he either adapted or were exacerbated at Nebraska, which I don't think is a great environment for him. Um, so I, I am glad that he's going pro now, even though I think there are a lot of issues with his game still. But I think the NBA is going to be a much more conducive environment for him to work those out of his game and become a more productive player. So I, with his frame, his athleticism, his scoring ability, I don't want to rule out a bigger role because if he does really effectively learn how to run a two-man game or can just be an average defender, then we're talking about a guy who could be a starting shooting guard on you know a playoff team down the line. If those things never come around, then you know he's the first, second, or third guy off a bench and can provide some kind of high upside scoring um, on the right night. So for me, the reason that I'm encouraged about his potential to be more than just a bench type going forward is his frame. I mean, him being six, seven makes a dramatic difference. You know, these sort of six man guard scoring archetypes. I mean, the most obvious Kings example for the past few years has been buddy healed where it's like, okay, this guy can score in bunches and he's one of the best shooters in the league, but you know, he's six, four and he doesn't play defense. So can you really keep him in the starting lineup? And sure enough, he yo-yoed out of the starting lineup for basically his entire Kings career. But, you know, with McGowan's, the frame is encouraging because I think the way that he becomes a starter is on the defensive end. His 1.4 to 2.1 assist to turnover ratio is not great. But, you know, if he's more of a wing shooting guard slash small forward type than just a pure scoring combo guard, I think that dramatically increases his odds of finding a fit in a starting lineup as opposed to just being a bench piece. Yeah, and he's got to improve his ability to take care of the ball. And then if he does kind of become the scorer that we think or hope he could potentially turn into, he's really got to learn how to use that gravity to create for others. And that's what we see the best scorers do when they take that leap, when they take that leap as a player is when they realize how to fully leverage their scoring and whether that's on kickouts or making the extra pass or running an awesome two man game, it's those areas of the game that elevate, really good scorers to really good starters and really good teammates and winning basketball players. All right. So we have talked now for quite a bit about Bryce McGowan's, but I do want to sort of broaden up the discussion here and talk about evaluating shot selection in general. And this is something that I have always struggled with since I started evaluating NBA draft prospects, because, you know, I get, 
I don't think annoyed is even the right word, but I get more frustrated by players who are inefficient shot creators than any other player archetype. And most of the reason for that is when there are those flashes, you know, when these guys who can create these good looks for themselves, you know, get to their spots with regularity, they can just have some of the most impressive games of any draft prospect you evaluate. But, you know, especially for some of these players, you look at the entirety of the rest of their game and there's very little that you can find to like. And, you know, you look at the two games out of 20 where they're hitting all their shots and it looks great. And you look at the other 18 games and you just get consistently frustrated. So properly evaluating shot selection for these guys that have this, you know, potential to be these high level shot creators in the NBA is really difficult for me because, you know, if they hit their ceiling, you know, these kind of guys, they have a lot higher ceiling than players who are, you know, more sort of complimentary role player types. But the flip side is, these kind of players bust out of the NBA at a higher rate than pretty much anyone else. And so if you really don't have anything else besides that shot creation, it's, it's difficult for me to put as high of a grade on these guys as I know I should based on their upside, but the downside just almost all the time, the downside just scares me too much to actually be like, okay, you know what? I think you're going to be a first round prospect, which, you know, I have dramatically boosted Bryce McGowan's up my board, but I still have him as a very early second rounder in the thirties, not quite a first rounder because a lot of the early season tape troubled me. And there are some shot creators in this class who I have even lower than that, but I don't know. It's a very difficult kind of skill to evaluate because the high end of it is so important to every NBA team. And the low end of it is often what leads to guys falling out of the league. It's one of those, you know, draft cliches that gets i i feel I, I feel like it gets manipulated the most um and interpreted completely differently by whoever's doing the evaluation and I, i'm guilty of it too where <laughs> ba- like if we like the player not all the shot selection is a bad thing if we have issues with the player they're an idiot and their shot selection is awful. Um, and that can vary from prospect to prospect. So it, it, it's so hard because, you know, I, I, I'm with you. It's the that, that archetype of player that I just don't enjoy watching. I, I think it's ugly basketball. I think it's inefficient. I don't think it leads to winning. But what what I try to continuously factor in is situation and is it something that they're being asked to do because they have no one else on the team who can go out and create a shot or is it something that they think is the best option for the team and without being in the room without being in the gym it's hard to know it it, but that's where the big difference comes in where it's if the guy is being asked to do it um i have a little more leeway that they can play in a different style if they're not if they're just going out there and doing whatever they want and that is who they are 100 percent of the time that's where that real boomer bust factor that you mentioned comes into play um you know cam thomas is the guy that we always we talked about a lot last year um and i think both of us underrated him um because we were just frustrated with it but i also think it was a situation where his coaching staff just told him to go out and do that. Whereas like, Hey, you have free reign. You're the only guy who can really go out and create his own shot consistently. Go get 20 to 25 every night. 
Uh, Turquavion Smith this year, similar type of player. Blake Wesley, similar type of player. Uh, yeah, even Johnny Davis. I know there are a lot of issues with his shot selection, but you know, for me, and again, this falls into what I was talking about earlier with how we weigh it differently. Because I like Johnny Moore as a player. I like a lot of what what else he does when he's on the court. And I've seen him play multiple different roles. So even though I didn't love all of his shot selection this year, I don't think that's necessarily who he is as a player because that team had no one else who could create anything off the dribble. So he was asked to do that. He was asked to exceed what his exceed his capabilities and do something that he isn't super comfortable with all the time. And he did it at a really high level. So it's such a tough evaluation because it means so many different things for, to so many different people and, you know, similar shots are not equal to different players. So let's start with Turquay Van Smith. Um, We talked about Blake Wesley in the pre-show and we will definitely talk about him more later, but Turquavion is someone who we have talked about on this podcast previously, but I do want to circle back to him because he's really an interesting case for me. On the one hand, unlike Bryce McGowan's, he had Darian Sebron as a teammate who was someone who was a really solid offensive engine who, funnily enough, was basically the flip side of what Turquavion was as a player. Namely, Sebron got everything at the rim and Turquavion got basically everything from outside. But the thing about Turquavion Smith that interests me the most is his three-point shooting game which, you know, that's not exactly something that Bryce McGowan's had as a strong suit this season. But with Terquavion Smith, he was, you know, putting up a ton of three-pointers a game and knocking down 37% of them. And they weren't just, you know, wide open catch and shoot threes either. So I don't know, with him, you know, there were some bad shots, but he was just so spectacular from three-point range, given the kinds of three-point shots that he was taking, that I was kind of more fine with it than I have been with a lot of other players selections in this class, even though there were some questionable stuff there to be entirely clear. Yeah. He, he was frustrating because he, he's like 160 pounds soaking wet. Um, But his ball handling, his, you know, quick twitch movements, it was really, really impressive this year. And what, what really stood out to me about his, um, his shooting is how quick his release is he doesn't necessarily create the most space. He's decent at it, but defenders just can't react in time to how quick his release is. And he's got really good touch. And even the, the off ball shooting numbers were really impressive. So I think long-term I I think he's going to be a really, really good outside shooter. It's the stuff closer to the rim that worries me. Uh, It's the mid range stuff that worries me. Because kind of similar to McGowan's, he has a little bit of that low release point. So he's either going to have to raise that up or start generating a lot more space on his step backs and side steps, which I'm guessing is the route he'll probably end up going down. Um, yeah. It, but it, it, it's the, the stuff at the rim is what really worries me with him. Yeah, I mean, you know, the super obvious thing with him at the rim is he weighs like four pounds. So hopefully he'd be able to, you know, finish better in the future in theory. But I don't know. I mean, the three-point shooting is super encouraging to me, but you're right. He does need to generate more rim pressure to, you know, be more than just someone who's sort of forced off the line. And if he is forced off the line, he's not someone who can really operate in the mid-range as effectively as he'd need to. 
Yeah, and I, and I I don't worry too much about him getting to the rim necessarily. It's how he avoids contact every time he gets near the rim. That that worries me. There there's a difference between finishing around a shot blocker and actively avoiding any contact with him. When you look at the the free throw numbers of Wesley and McGowan's and compare it to Terquavion, it's really concerning where I, I believe is under two free throw attempts a game for Terquavion and for how frequently he got in the paint, he should be drawing four times that many free throws. But when he attacks the rim, he's launching himself away from the rim to avoid getting hit because of, I don't know if that's a mentality thing, maybe it's a weight thing, but working those types of habits out of a player is, I I think that's really difficult. So yeah, Turquavion just under three free throw attempts per game. One thing that was, I guess, slightly encouraging, I don't know. I mean, given that he's a 6'4 guard rather than a 6'7 wing type like McGowan's, his Lack of passing, I think, is more of an issue. He at least had a positive assist to turnover ratio, and he did make some solid playmaking reads. So it's not quite the same sort of level as McGowan's. But given that McGowan's has that three-inch size advantage, I think it's going to be much more important for Turquavion to figure out the playmaking aspect than someone like McGowan's. I I kind of like Turquavion's playmaking potential, I guess is probably the best way to put it, because similar to his mid-range shot selection, the decision-making wasn't always ideal or what you wanted. And so some of the turnovers were kind of sloppy, but I, I, I think there was some flair and intrigue with, uh, with with some of his passing that down the line, once he really learns how to read that second and third level of the defense and kind of manipulate guys out of the pick and roll, I, I, I think there's something there that could be really, really interesting down the line. All right. We had to get here at some point, but <laughs> it's Blake Wesley time. I uh, I mean, it's funny because I'm saying this as someone who has already admitted multiple times on this podcast that I undervalued Cam Thomas and underrated Cam Thomas, but I just so aggressively cannot get there with Blake Wesley. And I know that you're not quite as down on him as I am, but there's just so much of the way that he plays the game on offense that just annoys me to no end. And his defensive potential is something, but I mean, man, you know, at least he has that to sort of hang on to, but if he can't figure out at least a little bit more on the offensive end, I just, I don't, I don't know. I mean, he's getting some lottery buzz and I just think that that is a recipe for absolute disaster. You know, again, I acknowledge that this is a weak spot of mine, this kind of player, and it was last year with Cam Thomas, and it was earlier this year with Bryce McGowan's, but like, it is so difficult for me to buy into Blake Wesley because he was like historically inefficient. He wasn't just inefficient, he was like historically inefficient. Yeah, I I, I don't know what his exact rankings were, but I, I looked it up a couple of weeks ago, and given his usage rate and uh, is either... I think is his true shooting percentage. He had the lowest um, true shooting percentage out of like every anyone with the usage rate over thirty, or or one of the lowest. So it, it was he was basically one of the least efficient players in the country this year. Um, I I don't get the lottery buzz at all. I have him at forty right now, and a big reason 
why he's not lower is like you said, the defense. I I'm actually pretty encouraged by it with, I think he has good length, really good activity. He has a good motor. Um, so I, I do think he will be a solid defender at worst. Um, offensively, I think there's some belief that he could be a, a high-level passer down the line. Um, and then just as a space creator, I, I think he's a really good ball handler and a really good athlete who can generate good amount of space. The issue is the shot selection, the decision-making, the fact that the shooting form is like a snowflake and it looks different every single time. And that when he tries to finish at the rim, he has no idea what he's doing. Um, the, the, the Notre Dame Duke game, Mark Williams just abused him in the post over and over again. And Wesley just had no idea what to do. So I, I have him at 40 because I can see a glimmer of what a lot of people think he could potentially be. I just think there is so much work that is going to have to go into him to get him to that point that it either an NBA team isn't going to be willing to put in the time and resources for it after a year and a half, if he's not showing legitimate improvement or he's just never going to figure out, out the shooting mechanics and kind of shot selection. So I do not want the entire state of Indiana coming after me. So I will say that I have Blake Wesley as a draftable player. And I will say <laughs> absolutely no more than that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's like, uh, if he was better than a 65% free throw shooter and better than a 30% three point shooter and better than a just barely over even assist to turnover ratio and just so many other statistical things beyond the fact that just watching him dribble into inefficient mid-range jumpers makes me want to throw something at my computer. It's man, it's really, it, it is really difficult for me to evaluate him because I know that, you know, this, <laughs> this is an ingrained bias that I have about this kind of player that I can't let dampen my projection of them too much, or I'm, you know, not doing this right, but it's just really hard to buy into anything with Blake Wesley for me, other than the defense. And even that I don't think is going to be good enough to make up for what I think are some serious, serious holes in his offensive game. Yeah. And I, 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 I've gotten the, so why, why are you so high on Johnny Davis, but so low on Blake Wesley? And I've seen that comparison being thrown around a lot, and I think it's pretty egregious. Um, really? You think that's egregious? No. Uh, oh, do, do, do we want to put numbers on your rankings and see how egregious you think that is? Um, let's, again, uh, I have <laughs> a draftable player. Um, let's <laughs> continue on from there. But that's where the decision-making stuff comes into play for me, where right. I... I, I, I've heard all season that Blake Wesley was the alpha and omega like Johnny Davis was. Um, but Blake Wesley was surrounded by significantly better shooters. And I don't think that he had to do everything for that offense. And I'm not saying they were a good offense or a high level offense, but I, he's, he played with four guys who shot over 39% from three. Those are good shooters. And the fact that so many of their possessions ended up with a contested pull-up by him or him just throwing his body into a shot blocker and hoping to get a foul, I, I 
don't love that decision making from him. I would have liked to see him play a little more off ball and attack as a second side guy and just be more proactive about creating for others. So again, I'm not saying that he was playing with elite shooters out there, but I think that Notre Dame team had a little more offensive talent that kind of got forgotten about because of how ball dominant um, Wesley kind of turned into. I mean, I think that Wesley had a significant talent advantage around him. And I think that Johnny Davis's numbers took a serious hit towards the end of the year when he was basically playing hurt. And he still finished with dramatically better numbers than Blake Wesley. And I also buy into his defense a lot more. So if you're talking about what's the difference between Johnny Davis and Blake Wesley, I mean, in all the areas that they, you know, would attempt to be translating to the NBA. I think Johnny Davis has a pretty clear advantage. And I know that you're not exactly going to fight me on that one, but I mean, yeah, I think comparing the two of them overlooks not only a lot about their situations, but also, you know, what they did with those particular situations. And we've also seen Johnny play a lot of different roles where he's been a role player off the bench. He's been just a quality connector starter um, with the FIBA team we haven't seen any of that from Blake and I know that he is just a freshman so the sample size is a little more limited but he didn't even show any effort to play more off ball to try and do something different it it all felt like this is a Blake Wesley show and if for some reason my shot is falling tonight we're gonna win and if not I'm going to shoot four of 25 and we're going to lose. And so the, the fact that he, he couldn't really figure out different ways to impact the game offensively, other than being this volume scorer, um, worry me. And I, I don't mean to crap all over the kid because <laughs> that, that there is a talented player there. There is a good athlete there. I just think he's a ways off from being NBA ready and given the, given the rise of or the breakout season of Jordan Poole this year, I think a lot of teams are going to get bitten by trying to chase the next Jordan Poole. Jordan Poole shouldn't be the example. He's the exception. No. He landed He's the in, exception that proves the rule. Yeah, I, he landed in the perfect scenario and the situation and with a team that was willing to be patient with him to develop his skills and really bring out the best of his work ethic and, you know, when you surround him in that environment with winners and veterans who have literally seen everything and can do anything on the court, it's the best case scenario. I'm not sure there are more than three franchises in the league right now that can really support a prospect for three years until they make that leap. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, the concept behind Jordan Poole is great in theory, mm -hmm. but in practice, you know, oftentimes when you have as bad of a first year as Jordan Poole had, you know, the odds of you getting another chance anytime soon are not all that great. And, you know, I have been more wrong about Jordan Poole than I think basically any other draft player that I've ever evaluated. So, you know, fully, fully admitting that I was completely wrong on that one. But, you know, I think that that's more of a, you know, I'm not just saying that I think that's more of a special case than anything else because I was wrong, but, you know, I think it's because given mm -hmm. that kind of archetype of player, you know, 
nine times out of 10, you get someone who gets a cup of coffee in the NBA and then maybe scores a ton of points in Europe, but a lot of time doesn't stick around in the NBA. And the other one out of 10 times you get Jordan Poole or Jordan Clarkson. And then everybody's like, Oh, he's the next, he's the next Jordan Poole. It's like, well, kind of doesn't work like that. Like maybe one of these guys will be, but (laughs) odds are not in their favor on that front. Yeah. And it's just so hard. And, you know, we, we hear it, all the time that you have to show something after 18 months in the league. And mm-hmm. usually around then that's when teams start giving up on you and making their decision on whether they're going to give you a second contract or pick up your option. Um, and just NBA teams aren't patient. The golden state warriors are patient because everyone in that organization has job security until they die. <laughs> no one else in the league has that. So I, I think the Golden State Warriors and Jordan Poole should be a thousand percent commended on how they've transformed him and the work that he's individually put in to transform his game and become who he is. I was so incredibly wrong on him. But when I keep seeing all these player comps and evals of, oh, this guy could be the next Jordan Poole, it's like it, it feels irresponsible. Yeah, he could be the next Jordan Poole. He could also be out of the league in a year and a half. Yeah, and and if Jordan Poole, you know, and to go back to that 18 months timeline, Jordan Poole didn't show anything within 18 months. It was, I mean, he was in the G League last year. Like, yeah, the fact that he made this jump is extraordinary and a real testament to that organizational culture and his work ethic and his individual improvement. And if we're banking on a lot of these kids who, you know, Oh, well, what about that game where he went six of eight from three and dropped 35 points? It's like, yeah, he had an awesome night. That doesn't mean he's the next awesome scoring guard. And if we keep pumping guys up like that, it it just does a disservice to their individual development because after six months and we don't hear from them at all and they're in the G League and not getting picked up for a second contract and then going overseas and people forget about them forever. It just does such a disservice to the players that they could have been because a little more patience, a little more developmental time, whether that's in the G League or in college, could completely shift their career. All right. I can't think of a much better way to wrap <laughs> than that. So anything else you want to cover before we close things out? Um, go read next piece over on NoCeilingsNBA.com today. It was really good. Um, just great job of kind of telling his story. And I'll have something on Usman Jang for Friday. Wow, you actually have something to plug today. I do. Look at me planning ahead. Yeah. But in on a more serious note, thank you for the kind words. And before we wrap up, I do also want to say thank you ever so much to Joey Mamone over at Hashtag Basketball, who started Absolutely. out on this podcasting journey six years ago, who gave me my first opportunity to write about basketball in March of 2016. And I would not be here today with the No Ceilings crew or on this podcast feed with you without Joey. So seriously, Joey, thank you ever so much for everything you've done. I have always appreciated it and i always will joey's the best i echo everything you just said all right well he is tyler metcalf you can find him on twitter at t-m-e-t-c-a-l-f-1-1 and you can find his work on no ceilings nba and hashtag basketball as well as over at canis hoopus you can find me on twitter at n-b-a-j-o-h-n-s-o-n 
And you can find my written work on No Seeing's NBA and hashtag basketball, as well as over at Nets Republic. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.